You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Welcome to this podcast series, Together We Care, a Trowers and Hamlins and Little Bird collaboration. It's a series about inclusion, social mobility, acceptance, and how businesses can better understand and play an active role in supporting people who are care experienced. Little Bird and Trowers are extremely passionate about diversity and inclusion. We want to instill confidence in our colleagues and open up opportunities for them to understand the experiences of others, and for all our talent to appreciate they have access to the opportunities to achieve anything they want to in life, regardless of their background. We do hope you find our conversations with the various influencers that are making waves in this space interesting and are in some way inspired to play a part in supporting care experienced people and looking into how you and your businesses can make a positive impact. Thank you. Oh my goodness, I am so excited to introduce Alison Delaney to you. Alison is the founder of Little Bird People Development Limited and they deliver an award-winning leadership and talent management and values-based coaching programs to FTSE 100 organisations and SMEs. Alison is also the creator of the acclaimed Little Chicks Life's Lessons, the go-to partner for organisations to maximise and deliver meaningful social value impact through community engagement with a unique education program for primary schools. Alison is a mixed heritage woman and was adopted by a white family. Oh my gosh, it's amazing to have you here. Thank you, Sunday. When I hear that kind of introduction, it reminds me of everything you do. It's a bit overwhelming, actually. But thank you, and equally honoured to be spending time doing this podcast with yourself. So, Yatunde Danaya is the chair of West Midlands Race Equalities Task Force and has a very busy role as the head of Charles and Hamlin's Midland Office. She's a qualified solicitor and specialising in housing and law. So Yatunde also grew up in foster care with a white family, which is why we have so much in common and also so much to talk about. (laughs) We really do. We really do. And I'm just thinking back to that chance meeting that we had. I think it was probably towards the end of 2018. Uh, We were all glammed up in our frocks at an ICC uh, black tie event. I think it was for the uh, Greater Birmingham Chamber. Um, and our mutual friend, Amity Gill, and my, my colleague, I think we were passing, and he said, this is somebody, Yutunde, that I need to introduce you to. Can you remember what happened afterwards? I think we were admiring each other's frocks, first of all, which is, you know, just our, our normal state of play, typically, when we first meet, to uh, compliment each other on what we're wearing. And Amadeep is just such a fantastic individual in relation to networking and connecting like-minded people. So very trusting in the fact that he was saying, I needed to connect with you. And of course, we clicked immediately and made plans to meet almost imminently. And do you remember where we first met? It was actually a little cafe next to the Birmingham office. And we met up and it it was an immediate connection. And I think that's the bit that's really interesting. You really don't know until you start talking to people what you have in connection. And we had not only the fact that we uh, were both in care, or grew up in care um, with white families, but even more so, we've got the same hairdresser, which 
which was hilarious. <laughs> Absolutely. Which meant not only did we meet through arranged meetings, but also caught up with our hairdresser via our hairdresser to understand what was going on in our lives, which uh, also became quite intense often. <laughs> Indeed. And then we had a meeting. I remember that one in particular. I think it was in the autumn and I was, I think I was at home for whatever reason and I was thinking, oh, I've got to go into town to meet Alison. Oh, should I counsel? I could easily counsel. And then I said, no, let me go. And I recall the sitting, I think you have the table for about an hour, an hour and a half. And we started talking and we carried on talking. And I think by the time they came and said, ladies, we need our table back. I think we were pushing two and a half hours. Easily, easily. And I think that's why this has become so important for us, is although those meetings were informal and us connecting and building a friendship, what we also recognised were the importance of, of, of our story and the commonalities that we carry, but equally that we are just a small part of a much bigger situation that we wanted to bring some light to. And I think that's completely right. And I think, you know, it's, for me, during my journey, it's been very unusual for me to meet other people that have a shared experience. Mm. So, as you know, Alison, I was placed with foster parents at the age of one. Um, My parents are, or were, they're both um, past now, but uh, I'm of Nigerian heritage. Um, My parents have broken up. Uh, my dad had returned to Nigeria and my mum decided to stay. My mum was working a number of jobs and decided to place me with foster parents. Um, and it so happened that I think she spoke to a friend of a friend and I was placed with my mum and my dad, Mr and Mrs Farr. Um, and I uh, was aged one at the time and um, they were living at the time in Dartford but they soon moved to Great Yarmouth on the East Coast. Um, And they were an elderly couple. It was really interesting. Mum, as I did call her, um, my mum, my foster mum, was aged 60 when she took me. And um, mum and dad had fostered all of their lives for Bernardo's. They'd had, believe it or not, 50 plus children during that time of all different backgrounds. Um, And, you know, my foster mum was just very much a person who said, I've got lots of love and, you know, I just want to share it around. Um, Growing up, for me, there was nothing different about my situation, to be fair. Um, I, yes, it was very much a white area um, and, but I didn't feel different. I was very much accepted Um, and my foster parents just you know really instilled in me that I could be anything can do anything that I wanted to do I just needed to work hard which was no different to the message to other people I think at the time growing up Um, I was fortunate enough to still have connections with my birth parents and so I did get to travel to Nigeria and spend time with my mum. But it was quite it's quite interesting because my foster parents were extremely liberal, whereas my natural parents were slightly more traditional. And that's where the, not tension, I guess the confusion for me as a child came. 
um, it, it came from that. But in terms of, you know, I know there is a lot of discussion about interracial fostering and adoption now. Can I look back and say that I was disadvantaged in any way having been brought up the way that I was brought up? I think hands on heart, I can only say no, but I think that really is because I was still in touch with my birth parents. But again, that was not enough. So when I was with my birth parents, it was really interesting because you know, in a way I was seen as an outsider because I didn't speak the language, I couldn't cook the food, there was a lot of things that I was allowed to do with my foster parents that was not accepted in Nigerian culture and as I said that's where the confusion came but in terms of um, did I feel any disadvantage, I really don't think that I did. I really don't think that I did. Um, but Alison, tell me about how it was for you and how you were adopted by a white family. Yeah. It's fascinating listening to you because there's so many correlations as well, which is, is why this subject is so important to share and to talk about and explore in relation to different people's journeys and experiences and, and how we are all connected. But as you say, I was adopted to a white family. So I was fostered at three weeks old and then fostered at three months old by that same foster family. They'd also fostered previously, I think I was about the eighth child that they'd fostered and decided that I was the one that they'd keep. <laughs> so I felt blessed for that. Um, and as we say, this was you know back in the 70s. So there wasn't this wonderful amalgamation of diversity that we experience now where it's really not even something we blink at to see interracial families. But back then, it was. You know, I was the only black kid in the village. We lived in the countryside. Uh, so the only black kid in the village, I was the only black kid in the school. I was the only black kid in the local towns and cities. You know, nobody had seen black children, which sounds bizarre to say, but in the countryside, back then, that's just how it was. And and frighteningly, some areas of our country still have those challenges that they're not exposed to diversity. But back then, very similarly to you, I was absolutely accepted within the family. It didn't matter about my colour. Um, I was a child that they wanted to give love to, and they had lots of love to give. I had an older brother and sister as well who, again, you know, that could have caused conflict, having a child uh, that wasn't naturally born into the family, but I was never made to feel that way. And my mum was an educator and always taught us that, again, whatever you put your mind to, so long as you're passionate, you're committed, and you work hard, that connect with people, everything is possible. And so I've always grown up with that understanding in life. Now, unlike yourself outside of the home, it was different for me. And, you know, there were uneducated individuals at that time. Could we say racist? Yes, we probably mm. could. Um, but the way in which we were raised, again, my mum always said, don't match hate with hate. Match, you know, that misunderstanding with education. Give people the chance to learn. And if we can make a difference, then that's part of, part of our challenge um, to overcome. And so at school, 
you know, I'd get the usual stuff, can I touch your hair? I had the most wonderful afro um, in those days and, you know, kids hadn't seen it before so they'd want to touch my hair. They would rub my hands to see if they could get the colour of my skin to come off. Um, all of those little things that I didn't understand because I wasn't surrounded by people that looked like me but always just knew I was different because of those, um, you know, those microaggressions as we know them now, um, were happening for me in, on an everyday basis in school. But I was blessed to be good at sports. And, you know, if you're good at sports and entertainment, we know that that's a door and, and a, a way of connecting with people. Um, and I was blessed to be good at sports. So I was on all of the, the leading sports teams. So I had my platform and the element of respect in that space, even though as soon as I was out of that space, I was back to being that kid that was different. So equally, there was a confusion and a conflict that I experienced on a regular basis, but it certainly helped me to challenge and to be curious as to why those things were happening. And because I had such a good support network at home, it was an easy place to talk about it and to share and my mum was great at empathy and compassion. She never suggested I should think anything other than what I was thinking and helped me to explore those thoughts and feelings while she was also being educated through my experiences. And there were often times where I'd ask her questions or share something that had happened at school and I would see the pain in her face because she couldn't protect me from that. But all she could do was pick me back up and, and hold me and know that I was enough and that everything was going to be okay and I was protected and supported. So speaking to your point about interracial adoption and fostering, equally when I look back, did it impact me? Yes, it did, absolutely it did, but in a very positive way. I was loved and actually I see and experience families that aren't you know, in, 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 having adopted or, or fostered children in their families and there's challenges. So do I believe that's down to the colour of our skin? No, I don't. I absolutely don't. Do I think there are cultural differences? Of course there are. And that's the balance of, of understanding how we find that integration and that education and connection for those interracial uh, families. But I was blessed to, to have had a lot of that. So, you know, in relation to your experiences, Yutunze, and, and when you look back now as a professional in your field, how do you feel your journey has affected you personally and professionally? That's a really interesting question, Alison. And I, I can only take positivity. I'm a complete optimist. Um, and I think it's about navigation. So I am in a profession that when I entered the profession, um, you know, it looked very, very different to how it does now in that it was mostly, undoubtedly, very white. Mm. However, I think that having been fostered by a white family, and my fostering was long-term, so um, as I said, I went to, um, into foster care at the age of one, um, Typically around that time, it was very common for Nigerian families to put their children in white foster care. But then what tended to happen is that they'd take the kids out, take them back to Nigeria for their secondary education. That didn't happen to me. The bond that I, that I formed with my foster parents was extremely strong. Um, my parents did try to 
move me but it it was quite clear that it wasn't going to work um and so you know i i basically left great yarmouth to go off to do my further and university education but i think it was being able to navigate so around that time you know there was a lot of conversation around obviously you know the progression of people who looked like me and the difficulties and the struggles but i didn't see those challenges so whereas the outside world may have thought this is a black woman you know you are going to experience this i didn't see that the hurdles that perhaps other people saw for me were not not hurdles so even the glass ceilings that people spoke about i was very much what glass ceiling because my mum and dad have told me as long as i work hard not because i'm a black woman but just because in 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 general you need to work hard as long as you as you work hard you will hopefully succeed um so those are the those are the interesting bits and i have stories of being in environments and i recall one particular firm we were moving building and uh, we were asked we were told that we could go along and look at this new space before it was fitted out and i remember turning up and uh one of the senior more senior partners at the time i arrived and they clearly didn't know who i was and i was a partner at this time and i arrived and it was as though they wanted to say to me uh this is a private affair and i was I, I don't I don't see your microaggression or I see it but I'm not going to allow you to defeat me with it um, and there's just little examples things like that where I've just gone I can see the system I can see that the system says that no you shouldn't be able to do X and I've just gone well sorry <laughs> I've been told I can do X so you know here I am so in a way i think it has been i would say it's given me a resilience and uh confidence a resilience and confidence i think it's given me that confidence i don't see the barriers i guess what's interesting is when did i first start seeing those barriers mm. and that was not until i went to university and there was that stark difference so you know that difference of the african caribbean society over here you guys are over there and i hadn't seen that before i remember at that time the images that i had around me were images that i disliked and i remember somebody saying to me why are all your images of white people and i looked around and i went they're just people I, I don't see the need to distinguish. To, and, and so I think I have a, I, I, I'm able to see situations slightly differently just because of that ability to navigate, I guess, culturally. Um, but I obviously I am alive of the, the challenges that as a black woman and as a black community, um, we face. But Alison, what's been your experience in relation to your career and your personal life mm. and again so fascinating listening to you in relation to 
the correlations that, that we've experienced. And I am wondering whether or not this is an advantage that we've experienced based on not being sat down and told this is how the world treats you. Because my mum was exactly the same. It was if you work hard, if you're committed and you connect with the right people. <coughs> but you've got to be passionate about what you do. There was never any discussion around because you're black, this is how the world is going to treat you. Now, whether that's right or wrong, I don't know. But I definitely see a pattern in people that I talk with that have been raised by white families or, or exposed to a lot of white role models that maybe haven't articulated those challenges because they've not been aware of them based on being white. Um, but equally, just have a different view of the world due to the privilege that, that they carry. So... When I think about my journey, my career to get to where I am now, there was a very definite moment that my mum sort of planted a seed in my teenage brain, which was, I think it's a Confucius quote of, if you love what you do, you'll never work another day in your life. Now to a teenager, that sounds really appealing. <laughs> and so that logged for me. And what she was basically saying was, look at what you really enjoy, and shape that. Life's too short to be miserable and to feel you know, disengaged, disillusioned by putting a lot of energy into something that you get very little return from. So I did that, I started to think about, well, what do I really enjoy? At the time, my first career step was into the fitness arena. I loved training, I was quite athletic as, as a young adult, and so went into fitness consultancy which was great and you know you're working with people who are in their leisure time so there wasn't the politics or the stress that that you see in the natural workplace um, and that was really advantageous the hours worked for me so on and so forth but as I continued in that space I recognized actually you know I want more flexibility I want different experiences and, and diversity in my career path um, and so I started to think, well, where do I want to go? Not what's available, where do I want to go? I've never looked for jobs. I've always gone, that's the job I want. That's the organisation I'd like to work with. Let me go and have a chat. And I've always courted them and always been blessed to be able to shape something with them. And that is my massive belief, Yatunde, is that organisations often don't even know what they want until it's sitting in front of them. And if you have the confidence to be able to articulate your skill set and the impact and the credibility and evidence that, organisations will consider how they fit you into what they're doing. So that was my journey as an employee, but I always knew that I wanted my own business. And I kind of made a, a very definite decision that by my 40th year, at the very latest, I would have my own business. And I got to 35 and thought, oh, I should probably do something about this now then, if, if 40 is my deadline. And at that point, I was working with Virgin Media, who are an incredible organisation in relation to um, investing in people and their unique ability and really helping them to own that and shape that. They want your authentic self in that space. So it was an amazing playing field for me prior to stepping out into my own consultancy. 
and you know we were responsible for the leadership population across a, a huge organization so in relation to confidence as to can I go out there and do this with other organizations it became really clear that actually we could and so as I said my 40th year was my deadline and um, in my 40th year I launched my my company and people still kind of asked me to share how I did that because I suppose it was quite unusual the way I went about it but again that very much comes from my belief of well I have a lot to bring this is a partnership I'm not looking for you know a, a tug of the forelock or, or you know for you to 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 give me an opportunity in my world you create your opportunities and so again I kind of reflected on where my skill set lay I looked at the types of organizations I wanted to work with I was very clear I didn't want to tender for me that's a lot of effort for not a guaranteed return so I'm all about making life easier for myself <laughs> and and um, my first client was an airport and the reason that I did that was because I could see how a hub organization that has lots of spin-off partners would become its own sales force and so the way in which I transitioned to that wasn't even a pitch they weren't looking for somebody to come and do cultural and behavioral change I just knew I wanted to work with that business so I sat down with the head of HR at that point and said look this is what I do this is what I want to do in my own consultancy moving forward do you believe there's a place for this in aviation and within an hour she'd booked a meeting with their commercial director to say actually we need you because we're going through a brand transition but we haven't thought about the people and so I went and, and did my bit and I was up against you know some real big hitters like universities and major FTSE 100s and they chose me and I sat back for a moment and just was in complete disbelief at the fact that this is what I saw as huge competition, but actually I was looking at it completely wrongly. Actually, it's about your fit, not the size of your business, not you know what you've delivered in the past. If you fit in that moment and you can demonstrate your confidence, then actually the opportunity is there for you to create. And so those skills, those messages from my mum, and, and I say my mum because my mum and dad divorced when I was, I was three, so my mum was my, my main um, parent. They were the messages that always are in my head um, when I'm doing anything um, in relation to my business. And that's how it spiralled. That's how it's grown. So, you know, my team hold on by their fingertips when we're, we're talking about where we're going and what we're doing. And we've been blessed to have some incredible results and, and be on a continued journey that isn't limited. And as you've reflected, those barriers weren't ever positioned. So my view is I have a purpose and I know what that end goal looks like. It's up to me to make it happen. And, and my mum rings in my ears again when she said, you know, if, if something's broken, don't moan about it, fix it. You know, there's not time. And that's how my journey most definitely translates into my career. So as I said, I feel incredibly blessed to be able to have that um, and I'm interested to know really why you feel it was so important to share your story in this podcast series 
you know it's all about authenticity so for me moving into the leadership space has always been about authenticity this is who I am this is all of me this is my story and I think storytelling for me is so profound because you can learn so much um, and so I've never shied away from saying this is who I am this is what my life experience has been but it's been interesting because as I've said there have been very few people that I have come across in my career that have um, said that they have been in care whether it's fostering adoption which I find unbelievable I think it's you know considering and I don't unfortunately have the stats but when you think about the number of people that are care experienced and I don't know the reasons why people don't talk about it I can only guess but I feel, and we are, you know, we've said this, Alison, we are incredibly fortunate to have had a really good experience. And we do recognise that that's not the experience for everybody. But still, notwithstanding that, I, I know I've gone out on LinkedIn and said, if there's anybody out there who's care experienced in a leadership position, can you let me know? Because mm. I am just interested to know if there's other people out there that share a similar experience. And unfortunately, I've not had much back. Why do I think it's important for businesses to engage? I think it's important because business has a role to play. Um, and no different to the way in which we treat people from different backgrounds, different heritages, gender, sexual orientation, I think for too long there has just been a, oh that person's from care, therefore the stereotypical view of somebody who's care experienced is X. And both in, you and I sit here to say, no that doesn't have to be the end story to say you're care experienced and therefore you're not going to be able to succeed. But I do think that there is something unique about an understanding about people who are care experienced. Um, for businesses to really adapt the way in which they work, to be able to harness and bring out that talent. Um, and it's a slightly, just with so many things, it's just a slightly different lens uh, to say, how do I look at this situation? How do I understand stand this situation and it may be uncomfortable or it may require a different thought because you've just never thought about it before um but that's for me why it's so important and it's a it's an area where i think the care experience people have so much to bring because of that experience but often it's a case of people and organisations just believing in that individual and sticking with them. Um, and that's why, you know, business to me has a massive, massive role, role to play. Um, and I can tell you some of the stuff that we're doing at Trowers, you know, uh, it's been really exciting 
Um, <clears throat> from I used to be on the advisory board of the government backed Care Leaver Covenant. And I remember thinking, wow, you know, there's a role for Trowers to play here. And so I submitted a paper to our board and I was just like, I wonder if they will see what I can see. And it was so exciting when I got a call to say it's a resounding yes, we want to be involved in this because we can see that we have a role to play. But it's bigger than just helping one person or two people. We are now the legal partner for the Care Leaver Covenant um, and we've done things that will make an epic difference. So we've worked on something called um, the Social Value Toolkit, which is around um, local authorities giving consideration to care experienced people when they're going out to procure services. It's huge. Um, and there are so many other different things that we're doing and I won't spoil it because that's all for a later podcast. But the recognition of the role that business has to play as a corporate parent. Mm. Because at the end of the day, some people who are care experienced don't have anyone to turn to, to say, how do I do this? How do I get into, for example, uh, the law? How do I prepare for an interview? How do I dress for an interview? How do I hold a knife and fork? How do I... All of those things, and those are all things that business can easily answer. And that's why I feel that business has a really important um, role to play. And I guess outside of the legal profession, Alison, how do you see things playing out for business and that uh, interaction with care leavers? Mm. So I've been, again, blessed to have been um, contacted by Dame Sharon White, the chairman of John Lewis, you'll have seen the advert that went out at Christmas um, the beginner the gentleman learning how to ride a skateboard but of course the message was much bigger than that if you've not seen it please go and have a look at, at the advert but this is about addressing the injustices of care experienced young people very much talking to what you've just shared Jitunday and John Lewis have made a long term commitment to ensuring that these injustices are addressed and we are working with them directly in relation to looking at employability skills, they're committing to employing a number of, of care experienced people in their stores um, but also similarly to the Care Leavers Government and, and they are also partners with them addressing policies at government level you know, the, the, the challenges that are experienced aren't going to be fixed, as you've said, on a one-to-one -one basis. It's a much bigger challenge that needs to be supported and it had to have a corporate parent with real clout. And the Care Leavers Governance do a, an amazing job, but they need more support. They need businesses to step up and step in. And equally, you know, I won't spoil what uh, Dame Sharon will be sharing in a later podcast uh, that we're, we're lucky enough to have her join. But there's this movement, there's shifts happening, and there is the recognition that this is a population that is being lost. We're not supporting in the right way, we're not recognising their potential and the value that they bring to the economy, but equally that we just have a responsibility. And why are we overlooking these children and young people in the way that we are? So... I'm very fortunate to be working with John Lewis, but in numerous levels. So 
yes, we are um, working in the building better futures with John Lewis, but also they support our Little Chicks Life Lessons education programme as part of early intervention. So building confidence and resilience and self-belief um, in our primary school children, which is a preventative action for a lot of the reasons that children end up going through the care system. And we're incredibly proud of being part of that and, and just are excited to see how that flourishes and grows. Um, but, you know, you've, you've referenced the Care Leavers Covenant, which is amazing. You are so committed in, in that. And as you've said, you've brought that to Trowers, which is incredible. But how are we going to be sharing some of the work that, you know, you've done as Trowers and, and in the future in our podcasts? That's really exciting and I have to commend you, Alison, for the work that you are doing. It really is amazing. Um, and hopefully our listeners will have really enjoyed our conversation. Um, and we really didn't want to leave you without giving you some insight to what's coming next. Um, and we have a series of podcasts um, in which we're going to talk about various things for various reasons really. I think some people may be inquisitive about what it, uh, what it means mm -hmm. and what some, some of the, uh, what it involves in being a foster carer or deciding to adopt. And so we're going to, in our next one, hear the voice of um, some care uh, experienced people because we didn't want to leave that voice out. It's important that that, that voice is heard together with a foster carer, somebody who foster cares at the moment. And then we're going to move on and talk about adoption. Um, and we're gonna hear from somebody who's very close to me at Trowers about their experience of adoption. Um, and then we're going to continue with what else, Alison? And then after that, of course, we'll be looking at the voices, as you've said, of people that have gone through care, but also uh, foster carers and people that adopt, but then into the business voice. So why it's important for business to be stepping in and why they're making it their business. So really excited to be inviting some incredible women into that podcast, which we'll obviously let you know about nearer to the time. But we're really proud to be able to create this platform that we're able to share not only our own journeys, which has been today, so hopefully there's been some insights and um, some interest, as you've said, there, but also moving forward, making this conversation much broader, much more diverse, and hearing different perspectives from different people and different uh, journeys that people have experienced. That's absolutely great. Thank you. We really hope that you've enjoyed this first uh, episode and we hope that you will tune in again in the future. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.